Hey everybody out there, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in on all the details of the things, places, concepts, stuff, planets, galaxies, philosophies, everything from that galaxy far, far away. Today we're going to go a little into the criminal underworld, and I'm with my fellow enforcer, Ross. Mac, it is great to be here. I slithered out of my slime pool in my completely dark underground lair for this episode today. Um, it's great to be here. I've got my habitat suit on. I've got my my angry like weapons, and I'm ready to go get in my assault minivan to go after some punk kids who are trying to get away from us. Yeah, I like that you're the one who's going to go outside. Let me stay here. That's right? totally fine. <laughs> you look really comfortable. Right you got this whole like yeah. pool set up, and you yeah. just burnt your face. So mm-hmm. We are going to be talking about solo-related topics today as I bring the plot back to where we started. <laughs> um, we decided to, uh, we both love Solo, and we, we definitely we think do. it doesn't get enough talk. It doesn't. Um, so we're going to talk uh, about three topics will. that revolve around that. Yes. What's up first? So first up, we are going to talk about Kira, one of the absolute, in my opinion, best characters from the Disney Star Wars era. Mm-hmm. Just a character who has unlimited potential right now in the world of Star Wars and a, a great performance by Amelia Clark. We're just going to yes. talk about all of it. Yeah. And we're also then going to take um, a journey that Kira went on, and we're going to go to Kessel. We are. We're going to talk about the planet Kessel. We're going to talk about the uh, storm that surrounds Kessel and the things that live inside of that storm. We're going to talk about seeing that planet in animation as well. And then finally... We're going to talk about Lady Proxima, the yes. uh, criminal boss from the slums of Corellia. Yes, the Grindelid white worm leader herself, the giant, like, 15-foot-tall beast, Lady Maggoty thing. Maggoty thing, yeah, for sure. Well, again, it's going to be a CD kind of ugly st- stories now as we dig deep into the slums of the galaxy. And if it isn't already obvious, there will be spoilers for Solo. So please check that out before you check this episode out. Otherwise, you're going to hear some stuff from the worst way possible to experience it. Because we're just going to go over the history of Kira. We're going to talk about Castle. We're going to talk about Lady Proxima right after this. Let's talk about Han Solo's first love, the, would you call her a queen or just the first lady of the Crimson Dawn? (laughs) That's a very good question. How do you, well, I think to talk about her role in Crimson Dawn, we have to talk a little bit about her history. Yes. So today we're talking about Kira, as Mm -hmm. Max said, Han Solo's, um, let's say defining moment. (laughs) You know, this woman, this character Basically, her whole story, as far as we've seen her so far, right, is to motivate slash manipulate Han into becoming the person we meet in A New Hope. I think it's, yeah, it's the person who affects Han's life the most 
pre-original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, between her and Beckett, they shape him into the man we meet on Mos- in Moss Eisley, you know, on Tatooine. Right. Right? And so what we what this character does, I mean, this character is great and does a lot and has a huge role that we're about to talk about. But hopefully we'll get to see her become even more than this as she goes forward. So let's start at the beginning, right? The earliest mm-hmm. we see Kira, the earliest we meet Kira in Star Wars is in Most Wanted, the Ray Carson novel. Right. And that novel takes place before the solo movie. And it's essentially a story of a young Han and a young Kira growing up on Corellia how they sort of work together and meet each other, how Kira gets promoted to head girl uh, of, you know, of Lady Proxima's den. It uh, tells about how Han and Kira decide they're eventually going to escape together one day and how they start out as, you know, competitors. They start out as working for the same organization, but, uh, you know, two different areas. They have different skill sets and different, uh, different people they work with. They're after different goals. Kira is this girl who has been found and brought up by Lady Proxima to be this, um, you know, well-spoken. Uh, she, they want her to work, you know, with a high class of client. They want her to be the one in the fancy ball the- gown going to the meeting to strike the deal, not the one in the stores waiting to collect the payment. Yeah, they're 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 grooming her for more white collar work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, just to set the stage, the White Worms gang is basically it's it's I don't think unintentional. It's very um, like Fagin from like Oliver Twist. It is this group of adults that are gathering and collecting kids because kids are easy to manipulate. And once you lock them into your system, then they're your members for life. They always will. They'll never get out of the debt they have to owe you. And it's, it's, it's a racket. It, mm-hmm. It's an endless oh, sure. life being stuck this way. For sure. Now here is biggest story beat before solo. The biggest thing she participates in is this deal that Lady Proxima, her, you know, whether you want to call her owner or master or boss or whatever, that this giant worm creature that we meet in Solo, she's fostering this deal where they're trying to buy this information and there are three different factions who are trying to essentially put in bids to buy this information, okay? Mm -hmm. So you have Kira who is sent to this fancy hotel to meet these auctioners basically meanwhile han who you know he knows kira that they've been associated with each other but they're not really friends they're not really a boyfriend and girlfriend you know they're not anything other than associates at this point he is other kids grown growing up in proxima's dens exactly so he is sent into uh, this droid refinery area kind of this like underground area where he is waiting to basically if kira wins the bid he'll make the payment receive the item and everything works out well. Well, things don't go so well, you know, <laughs> at the auction. Things don't go as planned. An adventure occurs. <laughs> it's only because of a um, uh, a self-aware droid that Han is even able to escape this predicament. So this is sort of the start of Han and Kira's relationship. And they basically, throughout this story, end up on the run together trying to escape Corellia. Uh, Kira shows Han, you know, where she grew up, this kind of like safe house that she's built in the slums over the years, you know, bringing nice items there that she finds and, um, you know, finding basically a place where she can be safe. And by opening up to Han and showing him this, you know, safe spot she has, she's trusting him too. And this is sort of the beginning of their more personal relationship. You know, they end up, they're not only running from their own 
gang, you know, the White Worms, these people who are supposed to be on their side. They're running from the droid Gatra, and they're running from these other gangs that are basically all after this little bit of information they have. Uh, And they're trying to figure out a way out. Well, eventually they work their way into space. They uh, foster another deal. They think this is going to be the one to allow them to return home, you know, without uh, their their, uh, giant worm god being mad at them. To kind of remove their collars. Well, yeah, exactly. And so they make it, they, you know, they make it through, they lose friends along the way. And this is where Kira becomes, you know, head girl. She's fighting for this promotion because it'll mean more food, a better place to sleep. Literally the most basic uh, essentials. But, you know, for her, it's such a big change and a big deal. And then, of course, all of these things go well for Kira. She becomes head girl. And then Han goes out on this job, brings back a little bit of stolen coaxium. They try and escape the planet. And just like that, Han escapes, Kira's recaptured by the White Worms, and sold off to slavers. Yes. And this is where we really get to see her story in Solo, right? So Solo opens up with that little bit of a prequel. Um, we see that they're already in a relationship, that they trust yeah. each other, and that they have, have a plan to try and get out. And when they get the coordinate spaceport, when things start going sideways... Kira gets on the other side of the of the uh, security gate and, you know, Han has to go hatch his plan to get back here for her. Uh, exactly. Not right. being really aware of what happens to her. Yes. And so Han, for three years, doesn't have any idea what's happening. Meanwhile, Kira is brought back to the White Worms. You know, her insolence is punished. She's sold off to slavers who then in turn sell her to Crimson Dawn. Mm -hmm. For, you know, a year, she's fighting her way out, trying to escape these prisons, trying to get out of this place. And eventually, Dryden Voss sees something in her. uh, You know, you could be more than just a slave. And he basically brings her in, gives her an official position in the organization, teaches her things. You know, we see in Solo, he teaches her Tarascasi, which Mm -hmm. is a fighting technique, you know, so she can defend herself and be deadly. And so she's not just a negotiator. She's not just uh, a figurehead or a pretty face for this organization. She is. uh, Oh, she's all that. And she's getting stuff done. You know, she's out there actually accomplishing. He sees the same thing that Proxima seemed in her, her, which is like you can be groomed for the more, honestly, the more difficult work, the face work, which is harder Mm -hmm. criminal work. You know, it's it's one thing to stab someone in the back. It's another thing to stab them in the front. (laughs) And I imagine Kira's quite good at that. Uh, Probably. We'll see some of it as we go here. So, you know, for a little bit, Kira's story is over until she meets back up with Han. When Han comes to to visit her, well, not visit her, visit uh, visit uh, Dryden Voss and yeah. bumps into her. And of course, they have this great reunion and it's our first bit of, you know, we see Kira now. She's not in this kind of like scruffy uh, denim jacket and this little like, you know, worn up skirt outfit. She's now in this fancy dress and her hair and her makeup is all pristine. You know, obviously mm-hmm. we're meant to gleam from this that she's grown and she's changed. But we have no idea how she's grown and she's well, changed. And she's in a good place. She has a lot of station power mm-hmm. and, and in theory, wealth. Mm-hmm. It's more of just she has better circumstances. But Absolutely, yes. And what we learn throughout her story is, you know, it's not just that she's worked hard for this. It's that she's also committed her life to this cause, to the Crimson Dawn. So she's got this little brand of the Crimson Dawn symbol on her wrist and -hmm. on the back of her neck as well. She's basically, you know, the property of this man or of this organization. And for a character who Mm. is sort of very powerful, she's trapped 
in this sort of cycle of I take my orders from him, I do what he says, and then I come back home and I have a good life. And that may be okay, but Han sort of coming back into her life makes her realize that, oh, you know, maybe maybe I do want to fight for what I believe in, or maybe I do want to be on the side that I believe well, is the good side. At I least think, that's what we think. I think I think my interpretation of it is like, first off, I'm curious about that brand. I don't know if it's sort of as a slaver's brand or if it's like Yakuza tattoos, like you're tatted because you are you're for life mm-hmm. with this criminal organization. But I think the one thing I glean from Solo is just the idea of she was very happy on the first light until she sees Han. Yeah. <laughs> because she had found that head girl's position. She finally was like I'm a person in this organization, not a person owned by this organization. I am a mover and shaker within this group, and I see a future for myself where I can have nice things and feel safe, as you're kind of mentioning, right? And when she sees Han, it's like suddenly she remembers that, like, Han's alive. He made it. He's been free this whole time. Like, I forgot freedom how much I wanted that. (laughs) And it's so interesting you bring that up because throughout their journey together during the film, she starts off as very much like, you just don't understand the universe the way I do. You just, you know, haven't seen as much as I do, which is probably all true. Although she's saying it from a point of not knowing what Han has been through to get to her and to get to this point, you know, they both Mm -hmm. had their own experiences. And for the first time in their lives, they had experiences that were unique to one another, not a shared experience. Correct. Right? So you have this moment where they're both trying to say, hey, I've learned a lot. Come with me. And they're pulling in opposite directions. And then you've got other things because, I mean, a lot of the tension of Solo is basically who is Kira now? Because, like, Han's like, she's my girlfriend and she's great and we're going to move together and get a white picket fence and everything's going to be wonderful. And she's like, uh, hold on, I don't think that's how it's going to work. And then Beckett's like, you don't know her, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and throughout the movie, Han is trying to convince himself that that's what's going to happen. And to be fair, I think throughout the story, like especially after they pick up Lando and get on the Falcon, you do get those vibes of like, you know, their relationship is going to continue to build. And even though it's different now, mm-hmm. they still have this sort of unique crux of caring about each other. And yeah. that's going to play out in some way, even if we don't know how. And so as their story progresses, they end up on this mission to Kessel, where they both experience the same trauma of, you know, seeing L3 get shot down and, you know, this big uprising that they're a part of and their ship almost getting eaten by the Ma. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things that happen to them together. It's, you know, to her being back on an adventure, being back with Han. And to him, it's, you know, fulfilling that promise he made a couple of years ago to this person who he cares about so deeply. And so they're both fighting for their own personal benefit, but obviously they have different end goals. Right. And the last like moment they get to just kind of talk amongst themselves, like there's this great kind of, I think kind of warped thing where it's mostly a scene where Kira is telling Han that you're, who he actually is. Like, I know who you really are. You're, you're this heart of gold guy and you're trying to be this tough, you know, tough as nails, cutthroat pirate. And that's just not who you are. You you know, basically addressing the fact of when the rebellion comes, you're going to be a hero. That's who you really are. And I feel that there's the, the mirror is happening right there too, of like Hans, like, yeah. And you're this loving, caring, wonderful person, not this ruthless, you know, crime Lord. And, we can see that Han can escape the gravity of what his self image is. And Kira cannot. 
Like, or it's not a matter of escaping. It's a matter of choosing that life over her past life, right? Kira's mm-hmm. looking at this and saying, well, I could go back to where I was, right? And I was happy there in some ways, well, but look how much I've achieved. I, I think, th- to me, the interpretation there is, though, she is a criminal boss. She has done all kinds of dirty deeds off screen. Like, Beckett is scared of her. Like, he knows that she's... Oh, for sure. She's got to oh, be for sure. yeah. some monster like Voss is, and we know Voss is a monster, right? Yeah. But she deeply cares about Han. She didn't kill that within herself. She can't see him as just another job, right? And I think what Han's kind of echoing back there or or in the tenderness of her just addressing Han this way, we're seeing that like you've got this giant blind spot where you are trying to suppress who you actually are because you are not Drayden Voss 2, but you're desperately trying to you because you think that's the only way to get what you want because Han has mentally escaped Mm -hmm. the system Mm -hmm. and Kira has not. Oh yeah. I think that's very fair to say, you know, Han got to the empire and saw kind of the, the pointlessness almost of, you know, serving this greater, this big system rather than being out for yourself, looking out for your own. Right. And Kira has found this home, right. Air quotes that she has for herself. And Han is saying, no, 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 you, you don't need this. You, you have me like, let's go, let's leave this place. And Kira is saying, no, this place is too good to give up too good to leave. And frankly, we don't know yet who's right and who's wrong about this because they both go from their, you know, kind of the ending of solo off in their own direction with yeah. their own plan and their own goals. And yeah, we don't know we, how either really story plays out in the immediate future. Yeah, because we didn't say it, but like um, just to kind of denounce solo. I mean, what it ends up is Drayden Voss gets betrayed and he ends up being dead. And Kira climbs right over his body yeah. to to find out that. She already might have been being groomed by Maul, the leader of the Crimson Dawn, to already be a higher ranking member than Voss. And this secures her position in that because she's being asked to come to the inner circle of Maul. I want you by my side. And she literally looks down at Han and she's flying over him going like, ah, that could have been. But it can't. Well, absolutely. I mean, so there's a couple ways to read that scene. And it's very important, I think, to the crux of where her character is hopefully eventually going, you know, when we eventually get more of her, because I know we will. Um, Kira makes the decision, right, to take Han's side and kill Dryden. So at that moment, we're saying, oh, okay, Kira is on Han's side. Kira does want What what Han wants, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have the same end goal, right? And then we realize, oh, no, it's actually the episode eight throne room scene again. Yeah. They have a similar goal, but they don't want to get there by the same means. They want they, they they both wanted Drayden Voss to fall. Yeah. But for completely different reasons. Yeah. They have ideals, but not the same goal. And so you have this moment now where Kira is still, even though she's already made the decision of what she's going to do. Yes. You could say, okay, she sends Han away to try and protect him. You could say that she sends Han away to try and um, keep herself alive because if, Mm -hmm. you know, she goes off with Han, she could die. Right. She also is trying to maybe keep Han away. So that way she can just assume more power. Maybe this whole thing was just manipulating Han and his team to get her more power. And frankly, we don't know yet. Yeah. My, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Let's see. My read and my interpretation, which is just that, like, we don't have the quote unquote answer yet because we don't know what the next chapter is. But, like, my interpretation is very much like 
Kira had this plan. She had been working against Dryden Voss to kind of consolidate his power under herself and that she was just waiting for the right moment to take him out, which may be probably months ahead in the future. But like she's already got a direct line to Maul. Mm -hmm. She's already kind of got not approval, but she's like, I can do better than being Dryden Voss's second. And I think Han shows up, screws up all of her plans. And at the very end, she realizes that she has this choice. She could go with Han and try to escape this life or get back to the safe and thought out plan she already had, yeah. but maybe push it forward a little faster. I agree with all of that, except for one thing. What's that? She had to kill Voss to have a path of communication to Maul. She wouldn't have been able to communicate with him before that, hypothetically. We assume that it's... Maybe. I, well, I, she needed Dryden's ring to turn on the communicator. That's absolutely so, true. But what I'm trying to say is I don't think that's the first time she's done that on Dryden Boss's behalf. That may be true. The, the reason Maul I say this is because... know her. Yeah, Maul addresses her directly and yeah. doesn't seem surprised. Now, it's, you know, like, I guess if I felt that way, that this is her first communication, I would have... He's like, why are you here? Yeah. Whereas Voss, like, would have been the opening line yeah. to, like, you're breaking protocol. My, my thing is, I feel this is very a Sith conversation. Like, oh, you're here. So did you kill him? I hope you killed him. That's what I'm expecting. <laughs> it does feel that way, doesn't it? It feels like Maul is in the know of, well, this is a hostile takeover. Crimson Dawn is a splinter. It's it's what survives into the Dark Ages from the consolidation of syndicates that like Maul makes happen during the Clone Wars. And so, yeah, there's nothing that would surprise me less... <laughs> Then he runs it like the Sith and the idea of like most of his lieutenants are always killing each other to get up because that's the that is the power structure Maul knows and is comfortable with is master kills apprentice to make stronger masters. And if you're a master, you get killed by your apprentice is because you were weak. Mm, It's a good it's a good thought. And I think that probably is accurate. However. I would say the Maul we met at the end of Clone Wars, wouldn't follow that philosophy. Wouldn't say, oh... And we are in agreement that there will be a Solo 2-style material where we'll get more information, because <laughs> yes. yes. I also don't think the Maul we meet in Rebels is a guy who is, you know, um, the leader of one yeah. of the most powerful crime yeah. syndicates We're in the galaxy. We're missing two big chunks. Yeah. We've got, like, parts 1, 3, 5, and 7 of Maul. We're missing, <laughs> yes. we're missing a few. Yes. And so one day we'll see it. Luckily, we're not talking about Maul today. We're talking about Kira. So Kira leaves and, you know, there's this great visual cue of like the, the digital shutters are, they're shutting on the ship yeah. and you see the black and white lines, you know, kind of crossing her entire body, like showing that like, you know, she is sort of being pulled between these two spectrums. Well, she's also, versus evil. she's in prison. She's got bars mm, over her too. I like that too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and as far as we know right now, that is where Kira's story ends. You know, we don't have any more. Yeah, She's she... mentioned here and there and a few one-offs, but she doesn't actually show up in any Yeah, other when we see her yet. fly off in the first light headed towards a meeting with Maul, that's the last mm-hmm. intonation of her character. Mm-hmm. In... So far. Yes. So assuming that whenever we meet Kira again, she's in charge of Crimson Dawn. She's right. this new character. You know, where do you want to see her story go from here? What would you like to see happen for Kira? Oh. Does she ride Crimson Dawn until the ship sinks and goes down with it? Does she find a way to break away? Does she ever have interactions with Han again? 
you know, where well, does Kira end up for you? So the next at bat for me, like we all, okay, hashtag make Solo 2 happen. Yes, we'd like a Solo 2, but I don't know how much that's in the cards. So I think her story is going to get involved in different ways. I'm hoping the higher profile stuff is like um, television. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised to see some more of her character, though I think maybe in a more prequel sense, happen in Lando. Like, I wouldn't be surprised we see her first meeting with Lando as a cool cameo. Yeah, that would be awesome. In, in that. I, I'd like to advance the story, but I I think Lando's going to be a fun show, not a push-the-story-forward show. Yeah. Um, so we could see it there. Eventually, books, comics, someone... We're not the only ones, like, chomping the bit of, like, hey, this... The material that would make up a solo, too, of how Han gets involved with Jabba, how Kira gets involved with the Crimson Dawn... That is a story that will be told by Star Wars eventually in some medium. Yes. And what I would mostly want to see is I would want to see her climb Crimson Dawn and then have some... I'd like to have another interaction with Han, but that's just because I think that is what makes sense. Well, it's also very easy for Crimson Dawn needs a smuggler. And Jabba recommended this idiot kid. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely ways to make it happen. What I think is going to eventually happen is I think the choice, okay, in my opinion, if I'm writing Star Wars, right, which this is total speculation, I I don't have any gravity on this, right? But like, it would be the idea that, okay, so you've got Kira, she's consolidated her power, she is now the left hand of Maul in this organization that is gargantuan and only like organizations like the Black Sun and the Hut Syndicate these are the only ones that challenge them for power over, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff. And what I see is Kira gets involved with hope again, whether that's Han or otherwise. She remembers the life she is. She represents that she is a hero at the mm-hmm. end of the day and does something that causes Crimson Dawn to break. It probably mm-hmm. kills her, but it, it causes Crimson Dawn to fall so that we can have the sort of broken mall we see in Rebels, which is at the end of this period. I mean, as little as we know about the history, the arc of Crimson Dawn, that would be a not only something that makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. but something that could be very, very interesting to say, okay, we see Maul, um, all right, we see Maul captured by Palpatine yes. in Clone Wars, right? Then we know Maul is freed by uh, Mandalorians, and mm-hmm. he takes over Mandalore, and we see him at the end of Season 7 of Clone Wars, okay? We see him escape. Yes. Sometime from there to there, he gets into Crimson Dawn again. Goes. He back takes to all those contacts they have with the underworld and yep. builds his own underworld empire. Absolutely. And then we see him in Rebels as sort of this trapped. We assume. I mean, it could all be an act, right? Some of it could He's be seemingly an act. marooned. Yes, a shell of what he once was, Sith. Right. And and age finally caught up with him in a meaningful way. It it feels like that. Absolutely. So. If you have all of that to take him from this live action Ray Park sitting on a seat in front of Kira with his robot legs <laughs> to this broken old down, this broken down old man mm-hmm. to think that it's Kira who takes him from one to the other would yeah. be an, I think, extremely interesting and satisfying story. And I think it would and I think it would give the gravitas because you have a really well drafted and and created character here mm-hmm. who you are only getting part of her story. Like it, yes. you, you can just tell that like, because this movie is called solo, not Kira, like we get an arc for Han. We get a feeling of like, okay, like if I don't see more of Han, I'll be disappointed. I'd like to see more of his adventures as a young man, but yeah. like I can see how he gets to episode four. 
how Kira just blips out of the universe and is never heard from again, I can't see. I need her story to have more of a catharsis, more of an arc, more of an ending. Because she's a fascinating character, and we just sort of stop. Right? Screaming the fact that, like, yes, there was a plan. Whether that's an underworld TV show that was what got changed into Mandalorian or the assets went to Mandalorian or whether there was supposed to be another animated series, maybe taking during play during the dark times, or maybe she was originally supposed to show up in rebels or something. Something I feel at Lucasfilm was like, yeah, we know where we're going with her. Cause that's why we hired a like top tier talent at the time. You know, Mila Clark was at the height of her career, you know, and they're, they're grabbing her. And I don't think it was for one movie. I don't think it was just for a one shot. You know what I mean? So I hope so. I mean, I hope so, for well, sure. No, what I'm saying is, I really don't think it was. That doesn't mean it didn't turn out that way from a troubled development of that movie, a bringing out of that movie, that movie getting sort of paying the dues of the sins of the divide that caused from episode eight. Like, there's a lot of reasons that project was not as successful and not as smooth as originally planned, which could have changed a lot of plans around it. Um, but all the same, I really love that we have it. I really love that we have this character and I'm with you of like out of all the new canon characters. I think this is the one I want to know the most about. I know it's wild, isn't it? Like I want an I want another action figure. I want a book. I want a TV show. It's a character who I just still watching solo. I love watching her. I think she's a great actress and a great character and she's got an incredible backstory now. So give us more. And I hope we do. I hope we do sooner than later. It's only a matter of time. Uh, and I can't wait. All right. Well, let's go talk about the... Uh, let's go talk about some of her adventures and some of the people that have affected her lives right after this. On Solo, I'm captain of the Millennium Falcon. Chewie here tells me you're looking for passage to the Alderaan system. Yes, indeed. If it's a fast ship. Fast ship? You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? Should I have? It's the ship that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. I've outrun Imperial starships, not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Carillion ships now. She's fast enough for you, old man. Deep in the heart of one of the most dangerous celestial formations in the galaxy is a little world in just the eye of the storm called Kessel. And Kessel is a nasty place filled with some of the worst scum and villainy you'll ever meet. You will Unless never... Unless you have money, then it's a very lush forest world with nice, beautiful palaces. Which is why Moss Eisley is still the most wretched hive of scum and villainy. There's no one percenters in Moss Eisley. No, not as far as we know. No, Jabba lives very far outside the city limits. <laughs> yeah, he's in a different tax code. Okay. In a gated so community. Today, we're talking... Oh, God. Describing Jabba's palace as a gated community is really funny. Hey, right? only certain people are allowed in. Uh, I really think that's hysterical. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Um, so today we're talking about the planet Kessel. It's been a yeah. long time since we've done a planet, but this one uh, makes sense for us today because one, we're doing a sort of smattering of solo topics, and yep. Kessel is the um, it's the know, heart. It's, it's 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 the it's the thing that made this movie get from a pitch session to a film was we're going to show you the Kessel Run, yes. the run to this place, and if we're going to go there, we need to know why people go there. Yes, we need to know about the planet. We need to know about everything. But before we saw it in Solo, we saw it in Rebels. That was our first time yep. seeing the planet um, 
we'll call it in person, not, you know, live action. And then we also obviously see Sola, or, um, sorry, we also obviously see uh, Kessel in The Clone Wars. Yes. And so I think that's where we should start. Let's go chronologically, and let's talk okay. about all the times we've seen Kessel. So the earliest we see Kessel is towards the very end of The Clone Wars, right yes. before Order 66. Ahsoka has partnered with the Martez sisters, who have taken on a job transporting pot spice for the Pike Syndicate. And so this is season seven of the Clone Wars. Here we go. We see arrive, you know, uh, Ahsoka with the sisters arrive in the Silver Angel and they see this uh, lush, beautiful forest world after they make their way through the through the um, storm surrounding Castle. Mm -hmm. They make their way to the planet and they find this lush forest world that is nothing like Ahsoka had heard described before. You know, this place is very, very different than what she expected. And they're greeted by this regent of the king who is, uh, you know, going to host a feast for them and get them all prepared to take this shipment. And, of course, the sisters are happy to be here. Look at this place. Look how they treat their friends. Look at, you know, how great this place is. It's all bad press that you're hearing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. These people are great. And then after the feast is over and after Ahsoka's uh, fears have been uh, stated clearly, they make their way to the other side of the planet where they see a giant huddled mass of droids working on the slay are uh, working on the spice and then of course it takes ahsoka pointing out that no those aren't droids those nope. are slaves and of course the sisters are go oh that can't be the case the pikes are good honest businessmen the republic wouldn't let an operation of this size stand if these were all slaves Duh. that's impossible yeah no no there's no moral compromise in the republic none whatsoever they're perfect especially under Palpatine. <laughs> Supreme Chancellor Palpatine knows He's all. drained the swamp of all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so we see both sides of Kessel and, you know, the, the lie that it's telling. Or really, I guess it's not a lie. It's just two halves to a whole. It's if you're part of the 1%, if you're part of the, the well, ruling class on Kessel, you're living in this lush forest area. And if you're a slave on Castle, if you're working in the mines, you're breathing in this spice, you're breathing in this well, dust, you're working in these horrendous Yeah, uh, what they're what they're really invoking is a lot of the stuff we've seen in like places like, you know, South America with the cartels. The idea of you've got these very rich crime lords who have like nation state level like resources and it's all built on the back of poor under, you know, underappreciated workers being just driven to the bone as an expendable workforce to make this stuff happen mm -hmm. for them, which is very much rooted in legends. I mean, we've, we've had spice has been the stand in for drugs for star Wars forever. Yeah. And in the original, like young Han solo trilogy, we learned about spice mines and just how awful they are because spice in star Wars is generally perceived as like, it's like salt. It's a mineral. It's a mineral you mine. So you take all of the like American ancestral memory of man, if you worked in a mine, that was really hard, terrible conditions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the concept of the mining town of like, you know, you don't you leave the mine and you go to the thing that the mine company still also owns, because if you don't have your your job, then you're kicked out of everything you have. Right. You take all of that kind of ancestral memory and then you just mix it with modern like drug organizations and you end up with just these disgusting classist oh, uh, yeah. portrayals because the other thing i really like about they've shown um in in showing this is the pikes 
the the people in these habitat suits that are running Kessel, um, their syndicate is really, really like corrupt. They're they're not even human, so the the human slaves that doesn't bother them at all. Humanoid slaves don't bug them because they already know they're better than you. Um, and I think the other thing you see with sort of the the Pike specifically is sort of a um, how should I put this a deep disconnect from the galaxy's core morals. Like you you can imagine no Pike has ever joined the Republic. <laughs> like they're just a species that has a totally isolationist mm-hmm, view of ri- mm-hmm. virtues. Because I don't see the Pikes as looking at their slaves going like. Like, not saying just like, oh, slavery is not a bad thing, but just like, no, of course we enslave you. How else would you be useful? Like, I, I really think you see a, a a installed arrogance into the culture of that people yeah. um, that makes them different from the rest of the galaxy. I mean, they're always walking around with like a hookah pipes and stuff. I'm like, like, it's it. they're they're just a very opulent species. Yeah, well, like you said, established. They're yes. a species that is set in their ways. They have a system. We have all these slaves. They get the job done, and we make lots of money. Win-win, right? Win-win. Win-win. And, of course, this is what Ahsoka tries to convey to her associates, but they don't want to hear it. This is the big leagues. This is where finally we're going to get a contract. We're going to be shipping stuff for them weekly, and that's going to provide for us, and we're going to get out of the underworld of Coruscant, and we're going to make something of ourselves. Now, meanwhile, the people who are saying this are people who have been stuck in the bowels of Coruscant their entire life. They have no idea what to expect from this outside world. And so they're just kind of taking everything at face value. They're trusting everyone. They're believing everything they see. Well, dovetailing with what we talked about Kira, this is a step up from where they are. Uh huh. Like, well, in some ways, but is well, in their heads, low, right? Is being on a lower level of Coruscant better than living on the outer rim of the galaxy? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We don't. We don't truly know. True. Right. True. So one thing to think about, anyway. So then, the next time we see Kessel is in live action in Solo, and of course, this is one of the most thrilling portrayals of it because it's our first time seeing it um, in the flesh. We'll say, right? So we arrive, we're at that same you know, smoky kind of brownish, foggy entrance with those really cool running lights that they have guiding you into the maelstrom, which is really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this, we come to find out, is the Kessel run. How long does it take to get from the planet Kessel out of the surrounding superstorm that encompasses it? That is the Kessel run. How quickly can you get out from this planet, basically? And so we see our characters. They have this great plan. They land. They arrive on Kessel. They meet the Pikes. They say, hey, we're giving up Han and Chewie as slaves. We're here to negotiate our terms. They take Kira and Beckett inside along with L3. And they start a revolution. And this is the most we'll ever get to see of Kessel. Because not only do we get to see outside the mines, but we get to see inside. We get to see inside the coaxium vault at the bottom level. We get to see where all the different slaves are performing their work inside of the mines themselves. We get to see the control room that is run by the droids and the pikes, making sure everybody stays in line. And they even mentioned in Insolo, this control room is how they're able to keep such a large workforce of slaves with while having so few allies there because yeah. they're able to essentially keep them all in this bondage of these sort of electric collars from this control room that is manned by droids. 
Well, luckily, due to uh, Kira's Terrace Kasi and Beckett's sharpshooting, they're able to overthrow the, the mining facility, essentially, and make their way out with the coaxium. Which also establishes that Kessel, I, I don't know if we actually know this specifically, but like, I think it's a fairly new, rich plunder. It has coaxium, it has spice, it has a lot of things that people want. The Pikes seem to be the only ones to control it, and they are probably the ones that help tunnel the known route in and out of Kessel, which even that thing's a little perilous. It's the only safe navigation, but it's it's still, you can't just hyper jump to Kessel. It's this complicated maze you have to navigate through. And the reason is because of the Ma. Right. The Ma that we see outside of Kessel. Um, and this is our first time seeing it. So the Ma is basically this big, uh, how should we describe it? A big storm. Yes. Right, a big superstorm. And inside the Maw, ships don't come out. If you go in the Maw, you're lost. Right. right. You're trapped, you're destroyed, whatever. No one knows because no one who has gone in well, it's, makes it's, it out. It's known to most people. It's it's a thick nebula, which kills all your sensors. It's got lots of debris and asteroids and stuff in there, so you get smashed up. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's rumors of things being in there yes and as our heroes make their way off of kessel they have to have a quick hasty escape from the sort of brown dirt ball of a planet <laughs> they make their way into the maw where they uh they have a little encounter with the suma vermanoth suma vermanoth what a fun weird name for it's a very long one giant giant ball of a creature so we have this great scene in solo where they're escaping kessel and immediately outside in the surrounding area they encounter this giant creature this creature who is basically how would you describe him an octopus demon um i mean what would you what would you say it's it's a it's a mouth with tedrils attached to the back think like rathtar mixed with cthulhu monster Mixed with uh, yeah, if a wrath tar is squid? a if a wrath tar is a garbage disposal, this is a porcupine. <laughs> <laughs> so this whole this this monster, this giant thing that lives at the center of this um, anomaly, let's call it, mm-hmm. uh, is trying to just trying to get a little snack. <laughs> Just trying to eat this little ship. Not much ships come out here. It never gets to get any food <laughs> of this delicious, delicious energy this ship's pulling off. <laughs> so luckily, due to some fancy footwork by uh, L3 and by Han and by Beckett and Chewie, they're able to escape the Maw and leave Kessel behind, uh, sort of ending our first live action take on the planet. Yeah, and this is important because the Kessel Run is a very known smuggler's route because, you know, especially spice is one of the biggest yeah. trade items that gets sold in the underworld. And the way you have to go through the Acades Maelstrom that surrounds Kessel is you have to go this serpentining spiral route. And so what Han gets to do for the first time is he runs it in about 13 parsecs because L3, who's got this just eclectic sets of knowledge, being a self-aware droid and improving herself all this time, who's now hooked into the Nava computer plots mm-hmm. a previously never used route out of the maelstrom through, through the maw, through all of this n- awful and uh, does it in 13 parsecs, which is 12. If you round if you down, round down. Yeah. 
and thus the legends of the Kessel Run are born. And of course, we don't really know, but who knows what the... How should I put this? What the actual prestige of the Kessel Run is. You know, we've only really ever heard Han talk about it. So we don't know, you know, how big of an account. We know that it's. Well, I think it's the Kessel Run. Everybody knows it in the smuggler circuits because it's it's a very common job that if you're a smuggler long enough in in the Outer Rim territories, you'll probably make the Kessel Run. And that is absolutely that's what we assume. All and, I'm saying is there's nothing in and, and Star Solo Wars tell us that. boasting about how yeah. fast he made it, I think is one of those things of everyone knows the Kessel Run, but he's making this boast about making it faster. And I kind of see it as most smugglers are like, there's only one way in that you didn't make it faster, you idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. people who really know his story wouldn't work as well. Yeah. I think it's on people like Ray who have heard that in smuggler bars, right? That's the person who... Yeah. And, and we also don't know how much more important that factoid gets when Han actually gets a reasonable reputation worth a dang. Not he's one of Jabba's smugglers, but no, he's General Solo. And did you hear about his backstory? He's the guy who made the Kessel Run. And <laughs> <laughs> a legend in his own time. Indeed. Indeed he is. Now, there is one more time we get to see Kessel in Star Wars, and that is in Star Wars Rebels. Yes. Which is interesting because chronologically it's the last time we see it. But it's the earliest time we see Kessel. It was the first time we saw it in Star Wars um, film. Yes. But it's, yeah, it's it's the last time chronologically we visited. Yeah. And it's very different. It's very interesting. Because now, of course, you could say, well, it was just made before the movie Solo. So there was no concept of there being this giant storm around it. But when we see it in Rebels, there is no storm. There's no entranceway to it. There's just a planet sitting there in black space, and it's controlled by the Empire. So it has become a completely different environment now because the Empire, they have stormtroopers there. They have a base there. They're bringing Wookiees there to enslave them that they're stealing from Kashyyyk. And that's why we see Ezra going there is to free these Wookiees. But... What's more interesting to me is the way the Empire has changed the planet, taken it out, removed it from this maw, and taken over. Well, the thing about it is, I think you could still imply the Maelstrom is maybe part of it. We just don't see it in the context of oh, the show. Oh, that's absolutely what it Cause, is. Because I, I feel that funny. when you see that Star Destroyer yeah. in Solo that makes them have to go make the Kester run in 12 yeah. parsecs, because the entire gateway in and out of this planet's consumed by the Empire, yeah. I could definitely see it as like, the Empire as a result of maybe not directly that, but the Empire's like, hey, we came out here uh, to stop this thing, and uh, well, we're out here, and uh, yeah, we're going to make some changes around here. Why? <laughs> well, we stopped off, and this is what we do. When we stop off of planets, we bring a little tyranny with us just to rein people in to remember yeah, who owns what. And I could definitely see that like, by the time we see it in Rebels, the Pikes have had to suffer imperial oversight on their their planet because i think we can really imply that the corruption of the rebel doesn't end when the empire takes over it Mm -hmm. just gets regulated Mm -hmm. um and so yeah the wookiee slaves i i I think you can you can imply that when we see them in solo that is to make the nod of yes many of the kashyyyk slaves end up here Mm -hmm. and one could maybe even argue that like more of them end up there now because of the Empire, because we know the Empire is super into slave Wookiees, because that's how you build a Death Star. (laughs) Slave labor, that's how you get it done. That's how you get it done. 
Uh, Kessel, I think, for the foreseeable future, will be an interesting planet in this universe, specifically because of the Maelstrom, the Ma, the Kessel Run, mm-hmm. everything that makes it up. And of course, now that we've seen it in live action, there's no. only more to come, only room for it to grow. They got here. those assets. They can build that planet again whenever they need it. That's true. That's true. So, you know, if we see it in a Star Wars TV show, if we see it in another film, if we see it in a book, now we have that great visual representation of what it looks like. Yeah, and Mando's in those circles. I could see him meeting a pipe exactly before we're all done. where my mind was too, yeah. So it's only a matter of time, I think, until we get back there. The pikes are a very, very interesting species. And unfortunately, yes. we've mostly only seen them in the Clone Wars. And then obviously a little bit in Solo. So only more to come from here. Um, can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be great. All right. Let's go talk about another weird thing from solo living in darkness in a pool of rancid, stanky water, rises a giant beast, a white worm, tall as three humans. And not only that, she's got a whole gang of little white worms that'll come after you. Now, they're not real white worms. She's the only real white worm. True. Don't want to make this confusing. But then she'll have dogs. She'll have hounds come after you if you steal from her. But I hear she's a nice lady. And I hear if you're on her good side, she's really, really nice. In this pit, she rises up, multiple arms, this maggot-shaped worm creature, and then she reminds you that she's that nasty landlady you never want to have. Like that's who she. That's who she is. <laughs> that's you, you, the person. She's the kind of yeah. person that owns tea cozies. You know, she does feel like a tea. Cozy she, she's person. the one that has like the incredibly rude dog and has the like beware of dog sign at the edge of the lawn. <laughs> that is Lady Proxima, which is who we're talking about today. Now, Lady Proxima lives on Corellia. We see her at the beginning of Solo. She is the leader of the White Worms gang, basically a gang of um, unhomed youths. That live on Corellia, people who are looking for a place to be, I believe don't them. have anywhere to go. They can find shelter with Lady Proxima. I believe their names are Scumrats. Sc- are, are the little yeah. urchins to change out street rats into yeah. like scum rats? Yeah, anyone who doesn't, anyone who's homeless, any child who is living under her care. Yeah, she's 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 a criminal boss, but she's to be honest, she's not doing like hut stuff. Like she's a local operator on Corellia and it mostly seems like local, like, um, you know, criminal underpinnings, local deals, that kind of stuff. And I think it's lightly implied. She's not in the hardest stuff. Like she doesn't seem, she seems like she's more into, um, facilitating and and working with criminal bosses and being a local contact and stuff for them. It doesn't seem like she's into a lot of drug trafficking herself. She's pulling off the gang heist. You know, she's maybe robbing a bank. She's not pulling off a hit. I think that's the best thing is it's a gang. It's not a criminal syndicate. It's a gang. It does feel that way. Yeah, It feels small time in that way. 
And when we get to see her uh, for the first time, the first time we see her is in live action uh, in Solo. She rises up out of this water as sort of this this criminal threat, this this person who is supposed to be the opposite of our hero, this person who is you know working against what our hero wants. Mm-hmm. And she's got this weird, just kind of like this weird voice. I don't know. How do you describe it? Not what I expected when I first saw her. Well, well, again, like a, a, an angry spinster is what I take it as is it's, it's a, it's a, a woman who is very frustrated with her situation and blames everyone but herself for where things are Mm -hmm. and just has a really nasty way of belittling people. Um, I mean, Again, her her first lines is like like Han, you're an idiot, and I I expect this from you. But Kira, yeah, come on, Kira. I expect more from you, dearie. <laughs> yeah, she definitely has her favorites, and obviously we can tell she's a threat. You know, she's someone who our main character obviously does not like, and uh, she basically threatens him, saying, uh, "Well, you went on this deal, you didn't come back with the coaxium." You didn't mm-hmm. come back with the money. Mm-hmm. You're standing here telling me you came back with your life, but obviously I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. So what you're telling me is you failed. Well, here's the thing, Han, my boy. We don't do so well with failures here. And of course, because of Han's um, quick thinking with his uh, rock thermal detonator. That's which just is a rock the, he has in his hand. If there was a scene that I didn't know I wanted... Until I got it in Star Wars, that is certainly it. Because there is nothing more Han Solo-like than seeing Han Solo try and bluff his way out of a deadly situation with a rock. Yeah, the, literally there's, there's, the there's David versus Goliath. There's paradigm. channeling, and there's just there's just a touch of like Indiana Jones there of sort of like goofy. Is this happening? Are you really gonna get away with this? Right, like um. Just because yeah. it, it is it is such a bad bluff. It is. It's like that's he, just a rocket a sound you made with your mouth. It's like that is exactly what yeah. he did. Um but look, if I learned anything from the great TV show Bird Notice, it's when the lie falls apart, you sell it harder. <laughs> and that's exactly what Han does. It's like, no, it's a thermal detonator. For reals. For reals. And he, you know, he proves his point when he throws his uh, thermal detonator rock through a window, exposing Lady Proxima to the sunlight that is so deadly to her. We see it scorch her pure white skin face, this whole side of her head. It's this like bubbling black effect and she dives underwater, screaming in pain. Yeah, because she's from the species called the Grindalid. Mm -hmm. And the Grindalid, she's the only specimen we've ever seen. So there's this just kind of weird thing of like, I don't think she's native to Coruscant or not Coruscant, Corellia. It just seems that like if the natural sunlight of this smog choked planet is enough (laughs) to burn you, you probably shouldn't hang out here. So it's kind of curious. Like there's an interesting story of how did you get here? (laughs) Because one of the other weird things about it is she's a very Jabba like figure in the sense of like she has no physical like chutzpah to to back up her gang. She is the mastermind of her gang. Yeah. That is why the gang doesn't rise against her, even though they could probably physically defeat her pretty easily. It's yeah. they need her because she's so much more yeah. intelligent together yeah. or or scheming than they'll ever be. And it's interesting because we see another of her species. We see oh, Malek. 
Oh, oh, right? oh, right, Who right, right, wears right, right, that, right. like, exoskeleton suit. suit so he can go outside. Now, being a male of the species, he's smaller. I assume that's why. It could be It could be an insectoid thing. Yeah. That, like, like, like how ant queens are gigantic compared yeah. to worker queens. That's my, I mean, yeah. that's my thought. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what they're going. I'm sorry. I forgot he's, I forgot. Oh, yeah. no, it's okay. I remember they have the pressure suits, but I forgot that, yeah, he yeah. is the same species. Yeah. And, well, he's the only one, as far as we can tell. So, you know, he's the enforcer, but is he the husband? Is he the patriarch? You know, we don't know. But let's just say here. So they have the ability to go outside, or at least this one does. and With so he, equipment. With equipment, right. So it's not like she, hypothetically, given enough time and resources, couldn't leave if she wanted to. Right, but there's a reason that she sticks around in this right. habitat. And we also get the kind of idea that there's a little bit of, like, amphibian. Yeah. Like this environment's probably too dry for her, which is why she lives in this pool most yes. of the time. Yes. Uh, now, this is, even though we know this character is still in operation and is still working on Corellia and doing all these things and well, she's is responsible for capturing Kira again at this Coronet spaceport and all that kind of stuff, we do get to see the character again, even though we don't ever see him in live action. Right. The, the Lady Proxima exists, and Lady Proxima, as far as we know, for like the better part of 40 years is just doing the same dance yeah because we see during the civil war uh dr afra is recently visited on lady proxima mm-hmm. because lady proxima is as far as we tell the most easy face to get in front of in the criminal underworld of corellia <laughs> i don't know she's if she's the, the starting mas- point well it's, i don't know if she is the most like powerful but it seems like a jabba like figure where you can have an audience with proxima where you yeah. where like she'll She'll take open deals from people outside her contact networks in a way that other crime lords won't. Yeah. And in the Afra comic, we see that Dr. Afra is going to her um, trying to find a path to a path engine, which, if you're not familiar, uh, is something that has come up in the High Republic. It's something that makes the Nile able to do what they do. And, so and look at all this extra material coalescing into one comic I book. I know, I know. Well, between that and the uh, um, Amamaxine Station, or however you say it, um, the comics and the High Republic really are coming together. But yeah. anyway, so we have this great moment. But what I love about it is, you know, Aphra's here trying to kind of strike this deal for information. And Proxima's like, oh, I remember you. You've screwed me before, haven't you? Just mm-hmm. showing that, like, Aphra has this great character history. Um, but, you know, it's it's nice to see Proxima expand into these other areas of Star Wars. And then there's also an episode of Star Wars Adventures, an issue of right. Star Wars Adventures, where Han and Chewie end up back in front of Lady Proxima uh, <laughs> again. And, you know, Han returns to Corellia. He's there looking for some pe- Falcon parts. Mollet captures him and brings him in front of Proxima. But this time, Chewie passes him a real thermal detonator. Which is just a great irony. Uh-huh. And by blowing another hole in the in the facade of Proxima's den, uh, he blinds her in one side of the eye, more light coming in, burning her, and he kind of has his final revenge this time with a real thermal detonator. detonator. Boy, yeah. and I love that, and I just really wish it hadn't happened in an issue of Star Wars Adventures. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's where that happens. I mean, because there's also uh, the one First Order spy, uh, uh, what's his name, Betsy, Betsy uh... The girl with the skull cap in uh, Maz's bar who has her own stories. Oh. Vezina Natal. I want to say Vezanine. Baz, but it's Baz-Nine? not. It's a, it's a B. It's definitely a B. Well, she was also, yeah. you, She was. she's following on the trail of Han and stuff and yeah. finds Lady Proxima. So, again, we're firmly establishing that 
Proxima is still running this the White Worms as of the the First Order Resistance War. Like yeah. a very long look, lifespan, apparently, for Grindelids. Say what you will about her, but you know what? She's getting the work done. She stayed in power through two major upheavals of politics. Mm-hmm. Like She's doing something right. Some things change, some stay the same, Mac. I don't know what to tell you. And I think the last thing you already mentioned it, but like now that we're, you know, we've kind of gone through her story and let's comment on it a little bit more um, conversation on her. You knew you and I thought I had entered the Disney era and just realized, well, it's television. This is what we have to do. When um, Bosk spoke basic. Yes. But nothing in the universe was making me ready for this worm woman to have a uh, basic language. Like, that felt subtitles t- to the end of time. It sure <laughs> did. Um, I, You know, you and I both had the same thought when we saw it of, why was this character speaking basic? Why, that just didn't add up to us. It seems like a protocol droid should have been around. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I, it is what it is. If that's well, the she's... sacrifice we have to make for more Star Wars films and whatever. All I, it I'm makes okay. her is, it makes her a little goofy and less yeah. threatening. It definitely it... makes her less threatening. But how threatening is she truly supposed like to I be? Like I said, she moment? doesn't seem like she's into the hardest stuff. Yeah. She seems like she's like a criminal in the old, like, like, I don't think Hannes had to murder anyone or kill any, you know, kill anyone or cause like true property damage in his service to Proxima up to this point. It's mostly been running stuff, courier work, protection money, that kind of like those kind of rackets. I'm trying to remember back to Most Wanted because it's been a couple years since I've read it. And I don't think there is too much violence happening. Yeah, the they, the they seem ones. like they're they're for lack of a better term, they seem like softer criminals than the yeah. really hard stuff. Yeah. Which I think is why again Proxima having this nanny, this nan nanby pamby like whiny voice, yeah. I think makes sense because again, I think what they're more channeling is like Fagin from Oliver Twist. It is this kind of older person who's found this resource in kids running some of the dangerous work for him. And he's organized them into this little troop uh, that they all kind of look up to him, not maybe out of like, you know, admiration, but out of fear at least and get a lot of free work out of people who don't know any better. And like Fagin, I don't think this is some sort of super criminal mastermind. I think this is just someone who's like made a comfortable living on the backs of others. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. She, She's bad enough that she's doing bad things. She is the villain in this section of our story. But she's not so bad that she has her own Sarlacc pit. Correct. Somewhere in between. Correct. Yes. So, fascinating character. I don't know how much more I want to see of her. But, hey, you know. More evil than Ponda Baba. Less evil than Jabba. Yeah, she doesn't have the death systems on, 20, on 12 systems or anything like that. Yeah, so as far as we know, you find out like when she was younger, you know, greatest hitman in the galaxy. <laughs> I don't know, Leon, the professional situation with a young lady Proxima. I don't know between Crimson Dawn, White Worms, like there's eventually getting Prince Cheezor into like official full big. I want to see an actor play that person. Don't, canon. It's gonna happen eventually. I am... well, the Black Sun's already back in canon, so like there's a lot of criminal yeah. stuff to under uncover, and I'm excited to see where it goes. We've never been closer, Mac. This is the closest we've ever been. Mac, let's go ahead and wrap this one up, huh? We've never been closer.
All right. Uh, like Solo, we're ending here, but the story's not really over yet. Yeah. But that's enough for today, I think. Yeah, not quite as permanently finished as Cara Dune action figures seem to be. Ooh. But <laughs> yes, done for now, let's yes. say. Well, okay, you kind of tripped over probably the biggest news that's developed in the last week. Cara, Cara Dune's uh, actress is no longer an employee of Lucasfilm. So. Which just makes it that much easier now for this character to grow into something else. I think, yeah, I think the one thing about it is, like, I, we were having a conversation off air about, like, I want characters to be bigger than just the actors that play them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do hope Cara Dune still has some, because I think Cara Dune's a really cool character, mm-hmm. despite issues with the person that plays them. Um. And I'd like I'd like to see see some more, but I I think uh, I, I think there's an opening on like Rangers of the New Republic if if you're uh, if you're a fairly athletically large woman you know there there's a role that they're going to probably change the name of and slightly change the character to a different character that was you know originally casted as someone else just saying just wild like just that. a wild speculation uh, it's possible uh, let's see where else are we at we're a couple weeks away from victory's price coming out mm-hmm. um we are i'm still reading into the dark are you still on light of the jedi Still I'm away further in Light of the Jedi. Nice. The end is in sight. Uh, That's good. You're getting there. Hopefully by the next week I'll have it. I'll very, have it very cool. Are you enjoying yourself still? Yeah, I'm I'm getting into it. I think I still critique that I don't need the Nihil perspective on most of it. It's fine. They're just terrible villains. Uh, I'd rather the... I guess the thing is, I'd rather the heroes be uncovering them than me seeing their story from their perspective. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not... There's not as much in there as I was expecting from yeah. the first couple of chapters. Yeah. Or once you get past the first act is, I guess, Yeah, more it's what it really is. like for every six or seven yeah, Nile yeah. chapters, there's a Nile chapter. So it is minimal. Um, I think when you finish... I. To me, it's fine. It's... This book is an origin story about yes. two sides, and I think that the way it wraps up, I agree. Reading it, it felt odd, but I think it only felt odd because we're seeing so little. I think they're purposefully think... showing us so little because we're only seeing the Nile from the perspective of characters who aren't, yeah, really the Nile. Like I know what you're to, saying. I know you what you're know, saying. It's hard to explain, but like. Without giving away spoilers, but yeah. it's something that I think that group of villains will become much more as we go forward. Yeah, and I think the end, end result, we talked about it, I think the only major criticism I have Light of the Jedi is it's it was very exciting at the beginning, but it's not the most focused story because, like you said, it's trying to set the stage. This is the yeah. this whole book is the opening yeah. crawl to the High Republic. Very much so. It jumps around between between a few different characters, a few different stories, and frankly, um, I think that's why I really liked A Test of Courage mm. is because it is just a story about one group of characters and they're together the whole time. Mm-hmm. They don't split up or separate, and it's why I think at first, like through the first twenty five percent of Light of the Dark. Or Into the Dark. Sorry. You, into the Dark. It's okay. Combining them both. Um, I felt kind of surprised that yeah. it wasn't a more cohesive point A to point B to point C story like a lot of Claudia Gray stuff is. But now that I'm further into it, I think all of them are just, all of these High Republic pieces are really expanding the world of Star Wars. And hopefully as we get into the next wave. Yeah, I think our, I think our phase one focused. here is just really... Yeah establishing what the galaxy on many, many different fronts looks yeah. like in this time period. And then you will get more 
personal stories with a lot of these wonderful big host of characters we've been introduced yes. to. So. And that's what I'm hoping for, too. And I mean, we already have been told by, uh, you know, the publishing division of Lucasfilm that everything we're getting this year is only part of part one. Right. So even when this next wave of novels comes out, it's still part of the first third of the story, meaning there's a lot more to come. And that's super exciting. It's absolutely exciting. There's a few other murmurs going around Star Wars. There's a rumor that I will buy my fourth lightsaber this year because there might be a Ray lightsaber mm-hmm. coming from Hasbro. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. Um, is it me or is just things kind of weird because it's not really Toy Fair this year, so there's not real like one central dump of toy information. Yeah, you mean you're not just following all those HasLab stories where they unveil everything these days, apparently? No, it just should I? just kind of comes out random Fridays on Hasbro. That's their thing. Like, every Friday... They announce either Power Rangers or Marvel Legends or Star Wars stuff. It seems. What happened to Mando Mondays? That was simple. You knew it was happening. Man, Mando Mondays really just was a disappointment to me this year. But that's just you I mean think last my year. Ex- well, sure. I think <laughs> my expectations were just too high. Of like, oh man, every week we're gonna get like action figures from the episode that just aired. Well, no, that's your problem. Is Mando Monday was a whole dump of merchandise. Your problem is your merchandise universe revolves around one sun. Well, how many stickers and Funko Pops and mugs can you buy? The marketplace can buy a lot, and there's probably more stickers of Baby Yoda sold than all Black Series figures combined. That's a very, I wonder, that's a good question. And I bet Um, you those t-shirts at Target that just have, like, the Mandalorian, just the Lodo type, those probably sell more than most waves of, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, I thought it was great, but I I agree with you of, like... it wasn't just stuff for us. It was the very broadest concept yeah. of Disney, you know, yeah. merchandising. It was all the stuff that should have come out last year. Sorry, two years ago. Well, it's all the stuff, that, stuff that would have happened if, season one. yeah, if merch knew about Baby Yoda, this would have been stretched out of a much longer period of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, don't be wrong. You want to unveil more Mando merchandise? That's great. More Star Wars is not bad. More Star Wars is not bad. I will take anything we can get. But it was a little disappointing to me to say, okay, week one, here's four Black Series figures from season one. Oh my God, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted. Yeah, there's no Cobb Vanth, but that'll happen next week, right? Uh, Here's a Bo-Katan. No more Black Series figures this season. Bye. I mean, that's basically what happened. But I'll also argue, yeah. that's because you're hoping Hasbro will tell you what they're having and give you a reasonable amount of quantity in which to buy them. Nothing in your history with Hasbro should give you any indication. You know what the definition of insanity is? Oh, I'm very much Doing the same thing, expecting something different. Hasbro doesn't... It's not that they don't care. It's Hasbro has a business model that works, and they have no interest in challenging it to lead to more fan satisfaction. Because I, I don't... In some levels, I don't blame them. Hey, guys, this one, we know you really want the man note. So we produced 2,000% more of them than before and you still all bought them hoarded them and only sell them on ebay (laughs) so the ebay price is lower and closer to list but that's all we did it didn't make any more fans be able to get their hands on these in a meaningful way i mean did you see the thing about right now in in february there's a pokemon happy meal going on right now (laughs) yeah i did and all the happy meal toys are gone hoarders went in grabbed them all paid off mcdonald's employees to pass them off and now they're all on ebay all of them yeah so, I'm just saying, millennial collectors are the problem, not the companies that serve millennial collectors. And specifically, it's the collectors, because scalpers wouldn't exist if no one paid them. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you're right that collectors are the ones fueling the fire, but the company is also ultimately could produce enough. When the epitaph of my generation is written on its gravestone, it will be, we feared FOMO too much. Yeah. Well, if there was ever a time not to fear FOMO with it when it comes to Black Series, a little bit of positive news, yeah. is it does seem like eventually they're going to make an archive figure of every figure. I think, you know, it seems like we're at the point now where that is happening, where they're putting out enough reissues of, you know, they they reissued um, the the Purge Trooper, which famously, you know, came out was like a Fallen Order kind of exclusive if you bought it. You know, so a $20 figure that was selling for $180 on eBay, you know, so now they're reproducing that. And, you know, just to pump a little bit more into the marketplace is always a good thing. And as screwed up as it is, I don't like this model, but I, I really do think Hasbro is trying to serve the marketplace as best they can with the market dynamics that they have in the sense that, like, last year I really was interested in the G.I. Joe Declassified series because, like, I like G.I. Joe enough that, yes, I want a Snake Eyes figure, right? And almost impossible to get. HasLab, gone instantly. And now you can acquire one. It's still hard. You're not going to find it in a store shelf kind of thing, but like it's getting to the point that you maybe order it from target.com and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I think HasLab is a great way for them to sort of get rid of the initial interest from the hardest collectors Mm -hmm. to then see what was successful and what can we print for norms. Yeah. Um, That that is not necessarily a bad way to go about it. I mean, no, the, the six-inch Black Series line has not yet had a HasLab project, so I have not yet had to put my money where my mouth is, as they say. <laughs> but one day I assume I'll have to. Um, and I think I'll be ready I'm sorry. for it. I'm saying HasLab. I mean Pulse. Just their Pulse. Their direct yeah. store that yeah. you can order figures before it goes to the yeah. channels. Uh, well, they do have that. Um, and I, I have used that before. And it's fine. I mean... I don't know. Well, it's a great example fine. is yeah. I the, the journey I just went through. The last time I bought something as a Star Wars collector going like, I need four pages up, refreshing them all the time, was yeah. I really, really wanted the Darksaber. Yeah. And eventually got mine through Amazon just because that was the one that cleared checkout first. Mm-hmm. Um, that and I didn't want to pay for shipping. Um, Understandable. <laughs> but like when I was going through Hasbro Pulse for that, I was like, it's all frustrating. It's all like, you know, off to the races. It's starting at this time. We think you could start buying them then and following Twitter accounts and seeing when everyone's going in and everyone hits it and it starts having website errors and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm really excited that like probably next spring, like spring of 2022. Oh yeah. That's, that's like, you can go get that at target. Like I think the pulse is diverting the most rabid fans away from the general issue channels yeah. so that while it'll take a while, those can catch up to demand in a way that just sending them to target and you can't get it to target. Cause that one guy knows a friend who works yeah. in inventory who already bought the entire case from that person before they ever hit the shelves. I You're dealing with less of that's that. The case. I would love for them to just sell directly to consumer, cut out the middleman as much as I'm an advocate of being able to walk into a store and buy something off the well, shelf. I realize now that is a special. No, what I want is I want the collector's market to be a direct buy like that. And I want those shelves at Target to be for children. I mean, that would be ideal. That That would be great. That's what I want. It seems too far of a stretch. Well, I think, again, we're slowly getting there in the sense of by the time it gets to the shelves at, you know, your local store, Mm -hmm. the majority of the fans have already acquired it. Right. They acquired it a year ago or whatever. Um, and I think that's good because I want 
I really want our scalper culture to die in a fire. We're, there's so many experiences that are just getting slaughtered by this rebuy culture. And our, our FOMO is making it like extra worse, right? Um, as a person who paid a thousand percent more for an NES classic before the market caught up to that demand, mm. not believing that it was ever going to catch up to that demand. Like ever since that experience, I'm just like, I'm part of the problem. I made that. I, yes, I'm an idiot. I paid for it. I had the disposable income to pay for it, but I'm the problem <laughs> because that scalper wouldn't exist. If no one like me existed, who would pay that price? Yeah. So, um, yeah, hopefully, uh, We'll get better as a civilization. But again, I want to say Hasbro, I think, is trying. Are they trying as hard as they can? I don't know. I look over at Nike, which is a company that really has a problem meeting customer demand, and I go, they have tried literally every permutation of this that they can think of to put more shoes in more people's hands while still having limited edition and collector models. And I just just think in the age of information where everyone can hit that one store that has them, it just may be impossible to fairly distribute this stuff. But I appreciate mm. companies that keep trying yeah, rather all, than just submitting yeah. to the fact of yeah. lining the pockets of scalpers. Yeah. That's all well and good, but I feel like I come from an age of, yeah, there's one figure that's rare and hard to find, but the rest, they're just there. They're available, and there's a plethora of them. And whereas your Nike example is everything is limited edition and i don't want to live in a world where everything is limited edition i think we already do i think 2020 for the toy market kind of enforced that because you couldn't go to the con and even get the con exclusives you had to get in line online to get those and i i think it's just one of those things of the reality is that's the market that's the collector market that's what they are that's what they forced on the world yeah and hasbro as a toy company is like we don't have this problem sending shoots and ladders out to the Walmarts. Um, why? And, and I think it's also because, like, let's be honest, I don't mind it for black figures, black series at all, because I'm like, those aren't for kids. Yeah, they're really not. I'd love kids to play with them, but they will yeah. never play with them. Yeah. And as someone who's unboxed black series, they're absolutely beautiful, posable statues. I, I, I don't really see myself going upstairs and grabbing your X-Wing and going around the house with it because it would take both hands. It's very, very large. <laughs> well, as someone who has large hands. Okay, I'm glad I'm glad to know that you have gone zoom, pew, 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 pew. Yeah, that's the thing is they just, they grow with you. You know, yes, now a six-inch yes. figure is just as big as a three-and-three-quarter was to me. But I, can you imagine? But again, what I want is I want like a seven-year-old to go in and play with that Tie Fighter, which you won't because it's a collector's item. It's very expensive. You can't break that. Uh, <laughs> but like, imagine, imagine you're like seven and you get to play with a Tie Fighter that's you sized. I mean, that's the dream, right? That's the dream, man. Right, and we need to get it back to that. We're that's, gonna keep that dream alive. I want toys for toys. Yes. So anyway, um, good times. Great oldies. That's why you had a lightsaber because you want your toys to be toys. And you know what? You know what? Didn't have to get a black market lightsaber. I went right to Savi's. He had the scrap I needed, and I just paid for it and went it went along my business. Yep. It was out. great. Also, for the record, when I was down in Disney, man, if you think the Mandalorian wave of like merchandising is crazy, when I went to Star Wars and I'm like, oh, oh, good, there's a rebel symbol. Like <laughs> the other 89% of it is all baby Yoda and baby yoda adjacent merchandise oh really oh yeah here's the here's the mando 
I mean, Baby Yoda's on that shirt somewhere because you can't just have the Mando as Mando content. He's protecting the child. The child. Everyone loves Grogu. Mm-hmm. Marketers everywhere screamed out in pain when season two of Mandalorian ended and they were separated. <laughs> that was our money. Yeah. Why did you do not? Hey, <laughs> again, make it up for lost time. But I, I love it. Grogu is still great. He um, is. And there's I'm so many out more. I'm Grogu cup right now. You are the child. It's, um, again, Star Wars, I think, is in a good place with High Republic and all this stuff firing all cylinders. Hopefully, eventually, you're talking about Black Series. I hope we eventually get to see some Black Series of our High Republic people. I it's hope we get some video game games related. There's all this stuff. The future is in motion. And we will be here to help you with it. But until then, I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. And until next Wednesday. May the Force be with you. This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2021.